Welcome to another life-impacting message from City Light Church. You can find more great content like this online at citylight.church. I do have a really amazing scripture to get into today. Uh, like I am, I'm very, very, I've been actually waiting to preach this chapter for a very, very long time, uh, somewhat because my son, his name's Isaiah, he's five years old, was named after the prophet Isaiah. Uh, when my son, so uh, I've had this Bible for, I don't know, a couple of years now, when my son was one, he got a hold of my Bible and somehow opened up to Isaiah chapter 42 and ripped it out. So only page in my Bible that has been ripped out. That's where we're going to be going today, which is, I mean, yeah, I, I tried sticking it back in. It didn't take. Uh, anyway, so here we are. I'm very excited about it. This is, I mean, there's a bunch of places, a bunch of passages in this, uh, these few chapters we're covering today that are very, very well known. Uh, and many of them that you may not have actually ever read from Isaiah before, but you have read in the Gospels before, or you've read in the pastoral epistles before, or you've heard Jesus say these things, and you're like, I thought Jesus said that, but he's actually quoting Isaiah often. Actually, uh, we we mentioned this right at the very beginning, Isaiah, outside of Psalms, is the most quoted book in the whole of the Old Testament. Um, The whole of the Jewish scriptures is the most quoted book, and a lot of that comes from the fact of there's been so many uh, foreshadowings and prophecies and allusions to this Messiah who was to come. And so obviously when Jesus comes, the Messiah, uh, he actually goes back to Isaiah and says, see, see there, that's, that's me. He's talking about me. And see here, talking about me, uh, his very first sermon, Jesus hops up in the, I mean it might not have been his first sermon, but it was certainly the first sermon that's recorded, hops up, opens the scrolls, the scroll reads Isaiah and says, and this has been fulfilled in your hearing. And then he actually does that over and over and over again. John the Baptist sends some people to come and, and ask him a very important question. John the Baptist is in prison, sends his disciples to come and speak to Jesus and says, who are you? Are you the one who we've been waiting for or should we expect another? And what does, bless you, what does Jesus do? He goes back to Isaiah and he says, hey, the dead are alive and the blind they see and the lame they walk. Um, that's from Isaiah and he's talking about me. And so you see over and over and over and over again, Jesus coming back to Isaiah. Isaiah, this amazing book. Uh, we've, we've been in this uh, part of history and geography for the last 12 weeks now. And uh, this passage, so like we looked at last week, the first 35 chapters of Isaiah are written to the people who are alive in Isaiah's day. Uh, they are present prophecies and judgments and certainly there's a lot of hope in there. So it's as I was saying, look, there's going to come a time very, very soon that's going to be significantly difficult for everybody and most of you are not going to make it. But because God loves you and because of God's own glory and his desire to be glorified in the world uh, and because he's going to, he has a plan, a redemptive plan throughout all of history, there will be a remnant that will come through. And then we have this part, <clears throat> chapters uh, 36 to 39, have this little historical interlude where we see uh, the story of King Hezekiah and see what happened with him and uh, one amazing battle that God wins on behalf of the Jewish people where they didn't send out a single soldier, not a single melee was fought, not a single arrow was shot and the angel of the Lord goes out and completely routes this Assyrian army and sends them home, towel between their legs, amazingly. And so that's all 
happening in Isaiah's day. And then we get to Isaiah 40. We looked at that last week. And Isaiah 40 is written to a people who would live 130 years after its writing. And so it's Isaiah prophesying, not just to people in his day, saying this is what's going to happen, uh, judgment's coming and it, you, know, you need to turn from your ways, but because you're not going to turn from your ways, because of your hard hearts, this is what's going to happen. This is written to the people that it happens to and then to the people after it happens. So basically, Isaiah is saying, because you have turned from God, because you have not listened to him, because he has been a father to you, and he has loved you, and he has saved you over and over and over and over again, because you kept turning your back, because you kept chasing other idols, because you kept chasing other nations, because you kept chasing other ideologies and philosophies, and look to your own strength, uh, there <clears throat> will come a great refinement. That's going to happen at the hands of the Babylonians. So if you fast forward 130 years, indeed, the Babylonians have come and they have conquered Judah and Jerusalem, the southern kingdom. And they've taken all of the remaining living Jewish people out of their land and into Babylon. And so uh, we have these people who have been conquered. They're in exile. They're not in their own land. They're not under their own rule. They don't have their own autonomy. Um, like bodily, financial, uh, govern, governmental, certainly, autonomy. And so they're in every way exiled. They're away from the temple, away from the place of worship, away from where, like the, the Holy of Holies, where God's glory um, really resided back in those days. So they're away from they're just, this place, disjointed, dismayed. And it's to these people that these chapters are written. It's to the people who are in exile. Isaiah writing prophetically 130 years beforehand, writing to these people for their comfort, for their joy, and so that they would certainly, so that they would see um, the Lord. We saw at the end of last week that very, very famous part of Scripture about uh, though young men are faint, um, will rise up on wings like eagles and run and not grow weary and walk and not grow faint uh, because of the strength of the Lord in us, because of his gloriousness, because of his greatness, because of his majesty, because of his magnificence. And that is where we pick it up today. So chapter 41 through 44, where we are today, really picks up where chapter 40 left off. So it's, it's still this continual thought, um, prophesying, comforting, these people who were to come, who would experience or live after this great uh, conquering army coming in and actually uh, div- not just dividing the nation, but taking the whole nation out of their land. So let's pray. Then we're going to uh, have a look in Isaiah 41 and see what God would have for us today. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your scriptures. Um, thank you for this, um, for this book, Isaiah, for Isaiah himself. Um, thank you for the way that you are still speaking to us today through these words, by your Holy Spirit as well. Help us to hear from you tonight. Help us to have those open uh, ears and hearts and eyes to see and hear and know uh, what it is that you would have us see and hear and know. That we would uh, certainly come under and submit to your scriptures. That we would conform to the likeness of Jesus and uh, think like you think, love like you love. We really need you. So help us to this end. In Jesus' holy name, amen.
Okay, Isaiah 41. Let's read some of this. This is where we pick up. Be silent before me, coasts and islands. This is God speaking. He, He has just spent a whole chapter encouraging his people by saying, if you... If you would just lift your eyes above your current circumstances and see me and know me, how I really am and who I really am, then you would know where your strength comes from. Then you would know what's going on. And now he starts to address other people. And he says, Be silent before me, coasts and islands, and let peoples renew their strength. Let them approach, let them testify. Let's come together for the trial." So here we, God is setting it up as uh, this courtroom scene where people are going to come along and they're going to be able to speak to God and actually say, God, this is, this is how we're feeling. And then God is going to answer them back. And boy, he does answer them back. Verse 2, who has stirred up someone from the east? In righteousness, he calls him to serve. Yahweh hands nations over to him and he subdues kings. He makes them like dust with his sword. Like wind-driven stubble with his bow, he pursues them, going on safely, hardly touching the path with his feet. Who's he talking about? God's saying, who stirred up someone from the east? Who is stirring? Who is stirred? Uh, This is God stirring Cyrus the Great. You don't see this yet, but we will see this uh, later in this chapter and in future chapters. That the, the Babylonian armies that have invaded and conquered and then exiled the Jewish people, they themselves are about to be conquered by the Persians coming in from even further east. The Persians are going to come in uh, under King Cyrus the Great. Like, what a prophecy is this? 130 years before Cyrus exists, he's as I saying, a guy called Cyrus, he is going to come in and rout the Babylonians. Uh, God is going to help him and hand nations over to him. This is showing us just the absolute sovereignty of God, the pure volition of Yahweh to say, well, I pick you, Cyrus, and I'm going to hand this nation to you and this nation to you. And Babylon, this world power, conquering army, uh, I'm going to deliver them into your hands as well. This is what he's saying. Cyrus the Great. Uh, ultimately ending, if you're aware of like the, this part of Jewish, the people, uh, people of God's history, uh, Cyrus was the king under which, under whom uh, like Ezra and Nehemiah and that whole um, range of people were uh, released out of exile to come back into Jerusalem to rebuild the wall, rebuild the temple. Like this amazing time is coming and Isaiah is prophesying it. And does the glory go to Cyrus the Great? No, it goes to God who is... Uh, allowing or even causing Cyrus to do these things. In fact, it goes on. Verse 4, Who has performed and done this? Calling the generations from the beginning. I am Yahweh, the first and the last. I am He. This is God saying, you know, all the stuff you're about to see, all these like political maneuvers and you know, machinations and armies, movements and, and conquering and strategy uh, and all this kind of you know, political intrigue that's about to happen, God is saying, I'm actually the master over all of it and I'm causing all of these things to happen so that you would know that I am God. And so that you in exile, in your strife, in your struggle, in your even depression, that you would know that I still love you, I'm still king and I'm about to deliver you. 
Here's what he's saying. Verse 5, the coasts and the islands see and are afraid. The whole earth trembles. This is how the godless respond to overwhelming circumstance. They see the Persian army coming in. They don't see the hand of God over it. All they see is just another conquering army. So first, it was the Hittites. I mean, we're not first, but in recent history, it was the Hittites. Then it was the Assyrians. Then it was the Babylonians. And now it's the Persians. And the people of the area would just be like, oh man, haven't we just been through this? Did we just do this whole rigmarole? Uh, just one generation ago and now we're going to be a different people or a different language or have a different masters or different currency or different legislation, different rules, all these kinds of things. Not seeing God but fearing yet another army, yet another circumstance coming in. They approach and arrive. Each one helps the other and says to another, take courage. The craftsman encourages the metal worker. The one who flattens with the hammer encourages the one who strikes the anvil saying of the soldering, it is good. So what, he, what Isaiah is prophesying to these people, to the world, is to say, this is how the godless respond. This is how those who don't know Yahweh respond. They see an invading army and rightly they fear. They see their, consequ- they see their circumstance around them and their response is of being afraid. And they try to cheer one another on saying, well, don't worry, I'm sure it's going to be okay. And then they go and they make themselves some idols. They go and they say, well, <clears throat> we're going to need help because we can't do this in our own strength. We have no army that's going to be able to beat this conquering army, this army that seems to be untouchable, unbeatable, unconquerable, unassailable. We're going to need some help, so what we're going to do is we're going to encourage each other so we don't feel bad about it, and then we're going to go and we're going to get some sticks or get some uh, stones or get some metal, and we're going to fabricate some idols, and then we're going to bow down and ask these idols, please, idols, would you help me? And then they're going to say, of these idols, it is good. It's actually, I don't know if you thought about, if this immediately comes to mind, but it's a complete inversion of Genesis 1, where creation is, is crafting a God and saying it is good. In Genesis 1, we see God creating creation and saying it is good. And here we have the exact inversion, a great perversion of man and woman's relationship to a creator God where they are now the creators. They, they are now the ones who are saying what is good or what is not good, uh, what is pleasing and perfect to their real God themselves. That's what we see going on in this, in, in this, um, in this time. Is there any strength in this idol? Is there any assurance in these idols? There is nothing in these idols. There's no power in these idols. There's no promise or hope with these idols, with the things that these people have made with their own hands, and yet they're turning to them because they have no other place to turn. They don't see God, they don't acknowledge God, and so they turn to their own, the work of their own hands. It's folly. But what else are you going to do with your fear? What else are they supposed to do with their fear? When they look to worldly means and encourage each other with worldly means, I mean, this inevitably leads to more fear, and I'll show you how in a minute. He goes on, he fastens it, this idol, with nails so that it won't fall over. This is supposed to be sarcasm. This is supposed to be like hilarious to the listeners. He's trying to say, oh yeah, good, good on you. you. You go and you make an idol and now you bang down to that idol, but you have to like hammer the, hammer the idol to the ground in case it falls over, like showing its utter powerlessness by itself falling, bowing to the god of gravity. 
has, has nothing. Uh, there's another place um, in, in our four chapters today, and it talks about, you know, you go and you fashion an idol, you get a log. You go and find a really choice piece of log. And with one half of the log, you make your idol, and the other half of the log is kindling for your fire. It says that is how powerful your idol is. What's it made of? Kindling. It's actually, it's a prophetic act to use half of the log for an idol and half of the log for kindling because you're really declaring the worth of that idol. It's nothing. It's worthy of being thrown into the fire. Like it is the fire. It's the fuel for the fire. It's nothing worth putting your hope in. This is where he's going. Uh, And he says, this is why you're afraid. This is why you fear. Because you put your trust in an idol that you have to prop up. I mean, if, if you have to prop up your God, then you are the real God, which means that if you put your hope in your idol, you're really putting your hope in yourself, and you know yourself. You already, you start, the reason you're making an idol is because you can't do it, and now you're really placing your faith in yourself, knowing that you can't do it, and just leads to more fear. This hopelessness. leads to this, like, crushing, wishful thinking where you, you know, unless, unless for uh, some sort of, like, cognitive dissonance you can... You can hold together. You know there is no hope at the end of that road. That's why they fall over. That's why it's good for kindling. These things have no power to save. It is folly to put your hope in something that you created, expecting that it can get you out of your circumstance when you cannot. It's foolishness. Verse 8, But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, who am I have chosen, Descendant of Abraham, my friend. So he says, this is how the world responds, because they don't know me. The foolishness, the folly, the fear. But not you guys. <clears throat> not you guys. I brought you from the ends of the earth and called you from its father's, uh, father's corners. And then he goes on, I said to you, my servant, I've chosen you, I haven't rejected you. Do not fear. So saying to his people, in exile, Staring down yet another invading army. Like imagine God's people in that time. What, what are they anchoring their lives to? I mean, they have already started to, to look for and look to and start to worship some of the idols in their land of captivity, the Babylonian, Babylonian gods. They've already started to do this. And yet here they see this invading army coming and God says, everybody else is running around rightly fearful, but not you guys. Don't you fear. And what cause does he give them for not fearing? This is what he says. Don't fear, verse 10, for I am with you. Do not be afraid, for I am your God. He doesn't say, don't be afraid because you're about to be delivered. He doesn't say, don't be afraid because the army's, you know, its bark is worse than its bite. He doesn't say, don't be afraid, because you actually have the power within you if you would just believe in yourself. He doesn't say, he doesn't say any of these things. He doesn't say, uh, don't fear because like, love conquers all. This like, abstract love, like love will win in the end. Just don't worry about it. I don't know. He, he points back to himself. He says, don't be afraid because I'm with you. Don't be afraid because I'm God. I sit on the throne. I'm in control. I actually sent this army to deliver you. This army is not Cyrus's army. It's my army. He, he refers to himself over and over and over again in Isaiah as 
Yahweh of hosts, or the Lord of armies. It's also translated as. Sometimes when we hear that, we think, oh yeah, of course, like the heavenly armies. He's got heaps of angels, right? But what he means is, I mean, he certainly means that, but he also means all of the armies are his armies. All of them. We've seen this at least twice already when he says, I will whistle and my Assyrian like guard dog will come at, my, at his master's call and I'm the master and I'm going to send the Assyrians to come in and then I'm actually going to beat up the Assyrians. And here again he's doing the same thing, saying, this is my army. I'm sending it. Don't be afraid. I'm God. I'm God. That's the source of the hope. That's the source of the strength. Not some tool that they have within them or, or you know, good attitude or fine learning or anything of their own creation. God always points back to himself because he's the only one worthy of our worship. He's the only one worthy of our hope. He's the only one worthy of us putting our trust in. He goes on, Do not be afraid, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will hold on to you with my righteous right hand. So this is the God who, when he, when he created the universe... He just spoke it into existence. Like, let there be light, and light has no option but to come into being. But then when he comes to create us, he actually stoops down in the dirt and gets his like, figurative spiritual hands dirty and, and crafts us. And then last week, uh, in, in chapter 40, he talks about himself like a shepherd that will scoop up us like a little lamb and hide us under his garment right close to his heart. Like it's, it's this intimate, tactile relationship we have with God. And here he says, <clears throat> don't be afraid because I'm, I'm right here. You see those overwhelming circumstances coming at you, or maybe you're in the middle of them right now. He says, don't fear them because I'm with you and I'm the king. I'm with you and all of those, all of those things I've either allowed them or I've sent them because they're my things. I'm the boss of all of them. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will hold on to you with my righteous right hand. Verse 11. Be sure that all who are enraged against you will be ashamed and disgraced. Those contending with you will become as nothing and will perish. You will look for those who contend with you but will not find them. Those who war against you will become absolutely nothing, for I am Yahweh your God, who holds your right hand, who says to you, do not fear, I will help you. So here we see God, not just holding us with his righteous right hand, but he's holding our right hand and saying, don't fear. I, I, Yahweh your God, I am holding your hand. One of my favorite things to do as a dad is to hold my kid's hand. Uh, I'll have one over here and one over here and like one hanging from my, you know, from my neck uh, and, you know, kind of a uh, rear naked chokehold style. Uh, it's the best thing. Just holding like little hand, little kid's hand, my big hand uh, and especially when walking down a busy road, uh, even just today on the way to um, my wife's car from church in the morning, uh, holding my little son, his name's Harvey, holding his hand and he goes, Daddy, can I, can I run ahead and not hold your hand? I'm like, well, thanks, son. Uh, but I'm like, no, because we're on a pretty main road and if anything happens, I want to be able to like yank you out of harm's way. And he's like, okay, dad, and, you know, away he goes, you know, thinking about it. <clears throat> this is like, that's just some small, pale shadow of how much 
God loves us, his children, his people. He would hold our hand with his own hand. You know what else I find interesting about this is? It's God's right hand. Like, the right hand, especially back in these days, less so in in these days, that's your weapon hand. If someone's going to go in and fight battles for you, they need their right hand. That's their sword hand. You might have a shield, that'll be in your off hand. If most people are right-handed, which they are, you need your right hand to fight your battles. God does not need his right hand. God who can speak stars into existence does not need his hand. He's using his hand to hold us. And which hand of ours is he holding? He's holding our weapon hand. In fact, if, if God is holding our right hand, it means we're not even facing those troubles anymore. Ah, he is the one who's taking care of them. He is the one who's the God over them. He is the one. He says, I, I will strengthen you. Don't fear. You don't need to be up at night worried and facing those things over and over and over again, worrying about them, staring at them, fretting over them. saying, you can turn your back on those things because I'm here with you. He goes on. Funniest verse in this chapter. Verse 14. Uh, Sorry, 13. Do not fear, I will help you. Holding your right hand. Do not fear, you worm, Jacob. You men of Israel, I'll help you. This is Yahweh's declaration. Your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. He says, don't fear, I'll love you. I'm here for you. I will fight your battle. Those armies, they're my armies anyway. Uh, You're like a worm. You can't do anything. You can't save yourself. You're incapable of saving yourself. You're incapable of overcoming those things that are coming against you right now. You can't get yourself out of exile. You can't defeat the oncoming armies. Uh, Be a worm. Let me take care of it. This is what I'm saying. This shouldn't this isn't something for you to rail against. Go, oh, I'm not a worm. Uh, no, no, we're the worm. Uh, we, are, we are God's worm. What's the worm told? The worm's told not to fear. The worm's told is not to fear. This is the key to this whole passage, is don't fear. It's don't fear. It's not that there's no work to do. It's not like, oh, well, I don't have to worry about anything anymore. I'll just sit back. Don't have to pay my bills. I mean, don't have to pay my bills. God's going to take care of them. Uh, get a bad diagnosis. Don't have to see a doctor or you know, take medicine or anything like that. God's going to take care of it. Uh, you, you have some really difficult work ahead. Well, I'm just going to cruise because God's just going to take care of it. Like He has given us faculty, right? He's given us agency. What he's saying is you don't have to fear those things. You certainly don't have to fear the things that would injure, harm, or even kill you because he's with us. Because he loves us. And he, they're not our problems anymore. They're his problems. We foolishly hold on to our problems. Instead of, uh, I mean, it's not even giving them to God. He already has them. We try to like take them back from him. It's not just letting it go. It's, it's stop trying to take it back. God is saying, this is, my, this is my problem. I'm stepping in. I'm taking responsibility for you and for your problems. I will save you. It's amazing. That's why his command is to fear not. His command is don't be afraid. Do not fear. Don't be afraid. Do not fear. Over and over and over again. Because 
Fear is the opposite of faith. Fear is the opposite of trust in God. When we trust in the reality of the saving God, then we have no fear. When you know who God is, when you know who this purely volitional being is, majestic beyond all description, when you know who he is, that he's in control, that all of those armies are his armies, all of the calamity in the world is either allowed or in some cases decreed by him for our good and for his glory, then we don't have to fear any of those circumstances anymore. So we don't tackle them, so we don't pray for them, so that we don't have work to do in them, uh, but we don't fear any of them because fear is the opposite of faith. Faith is trusting that God is God. Fear is trusting that God is good. Fear is trusting that... Uh, sorry, faith. Faith is trusting that God is God. Faith is trusting that God is good. Faith is trusting that God loves you and he will do what he said he's going to do. That's faith. Fear is doubting God's love. He doesn't love me enough to, to act. Fear is doubting God's ability. He might love me, but he doesn't know how big this thing that I'm facing is. He doesn't understand. Like, n- nobody can deal with this. I've already tried all my idols and they all failed. I even had to nail one to the ground so it didn't fall over. Failed me. What could God possibly do that I haven't already done? So it's a failure to acknowledge who he is or it's a failure to acknowledge that he will act. He will do what he said he's going to do. That he says our problems are now his problems. Our calamity is now his calamity. He has taken responsibility for us. Like he stepped in to, to the darkness, to the, to the depths, to the calamity. Isaiah's writing here for a group of people he would never meet that live generations after he died, uh, to people who are exiled in a land that's not their own, where they are living but don't belong. And I really do believe that he's also writing to us, not just the exiles in Babylon, but also us exiles in Adelaide, uh, who li- we, we are citizens of heaven and we're living here. God has put us here for a particular purpose, just like he put those um, Jewish people back then for a particular purpose. And yet he says those same things to us. Don't fear. I'm with you. I'm God. And I love you. And our response is fear or faith. We actually, there isn't, it's not a spectrum, really. I mean, there might be a spectrum at either end, but there's nothing really in the middle. Uh, it's, it's fear or it's faith. <clears throat> we fear our circumstances. Fear is not the same as having a a wise concern. So again, uh, your foot falls off. Uh, it's not just faith to go, well, it doesn't matter because my problem is God's problem and so I'm not going to seek medical attention and meanwhile, meanwhile you bleed out. Uh, we, we still have circumstances in our life that we're going to have to, for some, in some cases, live with or battle through for our entire lives. Some of these things will cost us our life, here at least. And yet through all of this, God says, uh, don't fear because I am with you. I'm with you. It's very interesting to see that in this case, he does bring an end to their circumstance. 
he does actually say, uh, what's going to happen is the cause for your concern right now will be removed. And for us living in our day, we exiles in Adelaide, uh, we know that same thing is true for us. It's not necessarily that the diagnosis will get better or that the disease will be healed. Uh, It's not necessarily that that relationship will be restored. It's not necessarily that uh, the job you lost will be replaced with a, a better job. Like I'm sure... You know, there's an even better thing waiting for you uh, down the track. I am actually sure that that is true, but not in the material, like temporal way that we might say those words. Uh, we actually see things from a completely different perspective. And we don't fear them. Are you in the midst of fear now? Is there something that you're fearing? Do you have something that you just cannot do in your own strength? Do you have that crippling debt that we talked about before? Do you have those relational issues? Are you having uh, health problems, difficulty or pressure at work? We can't find work. We're trying to pursue a goal that seems just too far out of reach. People seem to overtake you all the time in that goal. Uh, Do you have a problem um, just facing the future or the unknown? We're trying to discern what is it, God, that you want from me? And you have this like inability to take any step because you fear taking a wrong step or a misstep or choosing the wrong thing. Or are you, man, you see someone you really want to get married and have kids or have a family and yet you just cannot have a relationship or your friends, they keep getting engaged or married or then they have a kid and then they have another kid and then another kid and you keep going, will this ever happen for me? Or your friends are getting jobs or their friends are, seem to be progressing in life and you're like, oh my goodness, I'm getting so behind. Are you living with, with some fear? Have you had a bad diagnosis? Is a relationship in your life that, man, it's just a, it's a crushing, but for the grace of God, a crushing blow uh, in your life. You, you, you have to relate to somebody, but they have just mistreated you so terribly. You might hear words echo around your mind. I just I can't do this. I can't do it. I've tried. It's overwhelming. I can't do it. And it leads to this just fear. Which again is the opposite of faith. What does he say? What does God say? He says, come to me. He says, you are my servant. I've chosen you. I haven't rejected you. Man, so much of our fear comes from a, a false feeling that God has rejected us somehow. Because we've looked to the end of our difficult circumstance as the determining factor uh, for our like feeling of whether or not God loves us. So we've prayed for the end of this hardship. We're still in the hardship. God obviously has rejected me. Because we've heard people preach and, and say that God wants for your material wealth and health and just happiness, circumstantial happiness in life. Uh, opposed to what the scriptures say, which is not that. I mean, ultimately, in new heavens and new earth, it is that. Uh, In this life, uh, we have many hardships ahead, some allowed by God, some sent by God for our good, for our joy. And so that, like Romans says, we might share in his inheritance if we share in his sufferings. We go to him. You're my servant. I've chosen you. I haven't rejected you. Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be afraid, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will hold on to you with my righteous right hand. 
those who war against you will become absolutely nothing, for I am Yahweh your God who holds your right hand, who says to you, do not fear, I will help you. Man, this is awesome. Like nothing that you are going through, you go through alone, even though you feel alone. People have rejected you. God does not reject you. He doesn't reject you. And some of you, man, you, may believe, you may still believe this lie. God doesn't love you. It's not true. We see here in black and white, he has chosen you. Choosing you is the opposite of rejecting you. Rejecting you is choosing to not choose you. But he has chosen you. And he holds on to you with his righteous right hand, his powerful hand. So, I mean, you might think, okay, so I get all of that for God's people in the Babylonian exile, and then we see God come through for them like he has over and over and over and over again. Why should we think this is true of us today? Uh, It's right here in the very next chapter. And this is where we'll finish. Chapter 42. This is God speaking again. He says, This is my servant. I strengthen him. This is my chosen one. I delight in him. So before, chosen people, uh, speaking about the people of God, now singular chosen person. I put my spirit on him. He will bring justice to the nations. He will not cry out or shout or make his voice heard in the streets. He will not break a bruised reed and he will not put on a smoldering wick. He will faithfully bring justice. He will not grow weak or be discouraged until he established justice on earth. The coasts and the islands will wait for his instructions. This is what God, Yahweh, says, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it. He gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk on it. I am Yahweh. I have called you for a righteous purpose and I will hold you by your hand. I will watch over you and I will appoint you to be a covenant for the people and a light to the nations in order to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the dungeon and those sitting in darkness from the prison house. I am Yahweh, this is my name, and I will not give my glory to another or my praise to idols. The past events have indeed happened. Now I declare new events. I announce them to you before they occur. All of this, he is talking specifically about Jesus. The whole time. How will you know what confidence you have that this is true? This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to send somebody. I'm going to send someone who, he will be the ruler of the nations. He will bring peace. He will be for justice. He will be the ruler. And then he goes on and says, but I'm not going to share my glory with anybody because I myself am going to come. That's what he's saying. So I don't share my glory. This person's going to have a lot of glory because I'm the one who's going to come. This is what he's saying here. There's a story in the New Testament just after Jesus heals this man with a shriveled hand on the Sabbath. And man, the teachers of the law, they're gathering around. They're not focusing on this like amazing miracle that's just happened. This guy, for his whole life, has been in this uh, really poor circumstance, and I mean that in like many levels of the word poor, and yet here Jesus sets him free from his, from his condition, and the people around him are, are gathering together thinking, well, we've got to get this guy, because uh, he did a work on the Sabbath, got to get him, as where Matthew picks it up, Jesus uh, was aware of this, 
the dog wanted to get him, <clears throat> and withdrew. Large crowds followed him, and he healed them all. He warned them not to make him known, so that what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Here is my servant, whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom I delight. I'll put my spirit on him, and he will proclaim justice to the nations. He will not argue or shout, and no one will hear his voice in the streets. He will not break a bruised reed, and he will not put out a smoldering wick until he has led justice to victory. The nations will put their hope in his name. Jesus, once again, fulfills Isaiah's prophecy. The God, 700 years earlier, speaking this word of comfort and of hope to his people and to the whole nations and to everybody. That's amazing, even in Isaiah's day, that he is prophesying to the chosen people of God, saying, all of the nations will be blessed because God's coming. Because a glorious one is going to come and he will bring justice with him. That he is the one. Jesus is the fulfillment of this prophecy. And so our encouragement is don't react to your circumstance with fear. Respond to Jesus with faith. He won't break a bruised reed. Man, I love this imagery because I meet, I meet people, I speak with people every single day who are bruised reeds. All, man, not all. I'll say most people, they're feeling real bruised, feeling del- delicate and vulnerable. And they're just like, like a couple of words, um, one bad circumstance, one more broken promise, um, just, just one more, you know, straw on the camel's back before they, they just they break down, they break. And we have this promise of Jesus who will come to those bruised reeds. And what does he do? He doesn't break them, he doesn't reject them, he's chosen them. He'll gently restore them. And he's with them. And that's that's us. I mean to one degree we are the we are the broken we are the bruised reeds. We're bruised just in our, in our fallen humanity. We're bruised in our own sinfulness. We're bruised from the sinfulness of others. We're bruised in our own like fragile flesh. And Jesus uh, steps into our circumstance. Like God himself actually, he becomes flesh. He, he becomes like that hollow, fragile reed. And then instead of breaking the reeds, he himself becomes broken on our behalf. That's phenomenal. That's phenomenal. This is why we can put our faith and our trust and our hope in God because he's demonstrated over and over and over and over again that he's for you and that he loves you and that he is capable of anything he wants to do, which means that when we are going through difficult circumstances and we ask God to take us out of them and he leaves us in them, we can know two things. Firstly, um, God is always with us. He's not abandoned or rejected us. He's chosen us and he is with you. He has chosen you and he's with you. And secondly, that difficulty uh, can and will be used for your good. And we know these things in every circumstance because we have faith in God. It's amazing. So the cause, don't fear. Don't react to your circumstances with fear. Respond to Jesus with faith. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you uh, for this great...
promise we have that you are always with us. What a, what a joy, what a delight that we can't run away uh, fast enough to outpace you. There's no circumstance too big. Uh, you aren't afraid of anything. You don't look at anything that we might look at and tremble. Um, rather, any thing that would come up against your people rightly trembles at the thought that you are coming with your uh, power and your authority and your perfection and your holiness to take care of business because you've taken responsibility for us, your people, that our problems are your problem. A calamity is your calamity. Our griefs are your, your grief. You've taken responsibility for us, your people, and you have already conquered our greatest adversary in sin and death. And we thank you that through our smaller consequence, uh, circumstances and adversaries, you are always with us. You're always capable. You hold us with your right hand. And what a wonder it is. So help us not to just not to, not to have our vision limited to our circumstance, but that we would lift our eyes to you. We'd see you in your glory. We'd see you in your perfection. We would know you for your might and for your authority and for your volition. And we'd rightly trust in you. Thank you that you love us. We praise you for your mercy. We're such great beneficiaries of your love. And help us to love you and love each other in that same way. And we ask this in Jesus' holy name and for his sake. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from City Light Church. We hope you found it helpful and we'd love for you to share this message with others. For more great content, more information about City Light Church, or to donate to the work of City Light Church, visit us online at www.citylight.church.